All right, let's go to John chapter 6 again, if you would. John chapter number 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 45 through 48 today. John chapter number 6, verses 45 through 48. We've been working our way through this chapter, and uh, many of the weeks we're repeating verses that we've covered the week before. It's just a, a way of review. But John 6, verse 45, the Bible says, It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Now look again at verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Our Lord, as he continues to teach regarding the drawing of the Father, we began dealing with that subject uh, last week, I believe. He's dealing again with the results of what the drawing of the Father does. You'll notice that phrase contained within verse 47 says, He that believeth. Man's belief in Christ is a direct result of the drawing of the Father. If we believe today, it is by the means of the drawing of the Father. Our belief does not stand apart from the drawing of the Father. Uh, many people have falsely taught for years that once I believe, then I'm drawn by the Father. It is the other way around. I believe because I am drawn by the Father. The Father has drawn me into salvation. Again, I mentioned this last week. We came to this conclusion that man... Sinful man is never, has never, nor will ever come to Christ blindly, nor does he come against his or, own, his or her own will. In other words, nobody is drugged to Christ unwillingly. Christ doesn't drag people to be saved. He doesn't go against their will. Again, again these are false teachings that have been out there for a number of years. But you do see very clearly here that Jesus, as he speaks, he acknowledges and references that this has been taught not just when he came. This has been taught, he says, it is written in the prophets, verse 45, that they shall be all taught of God. Now, who is the all that he's referring here? He says, every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So we see here that Jesus is very clearly continuing this thought about man's inability to come to him or to believe on him unless he has been drawn by the Father. Now in verses 45 and 46, we'll see here in just a moment, but there is a uh, quote that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 54, 13, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But as we look at these first verses we're going to deal with today, verses 45 and 46, let's think about this thought for a moment. Jesus is saying that man is unable to believe in him unless he has heard and learned of the Father. Heard and learned of the Father. Now let's, let's go back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah for a moment, Isaiah 54. And I want you to see that this is what Jesus is quoting here. Isaiah 54, verse 13. The Bible tells us here that it's a phrase or a reference to all thy children. It says this, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. 
In righteousness shalt thou be established, thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth, the coals and the fire that bringeth forth an instrument for his works, and I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. That phrase in verse 13 of Isaiah 54, all thy children... Uh, those is a reference to all of those who make up the true church, all of those who make up what we refer to as the elect in the true church. Notice it says they are taught of the Lord. When we think about being taught of the Lord, often we think of book teaching. We think of uh, that which we learn by simply opening a book. And when we read the word of God, we are being taught of the Lord. But this being taught of the Lord is much more than just opening a book. It is literally being inwardly drawn to trust in Christ. There is a drawing of the Father for us to trust. It is not in our nature to trust God by our own human nature. It's not in our, it's not in our makeup to simply just decide one day, I'm going to trust in Christ. There is an inward drawing to Christ. But now here's something that always happens with an inward drawing to Christ. You are also at the same time going to be transformed to obey God's word. In other words, those that are saved are not just saved because they're drawn to Christ and then that's it. They're drawn to Christ, but they're also being given or transformed in order to obey the word of God. We obey out of our trust in Christ. Many times we make the fatal mistake of saying, you ought to just obey. You ought to just do it. You ought to just do it because I said so. We are transformed into the possibility of obedience because of our trust in Christ. We trust in Christ and that our obedience follows. When we understand today that what Jesus was referring to those that were the hearers there, he's making a very declarative statement. He says that they shall be all taught of God and every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned. Now we know one thing is true today that not every single person who's heard about the word of God has learned of the hymn, has not been saved. We hear the word of God that is not necessarily the inward drawing of Christ. Thousands and thousands, millions of people have sat under sound preaching and have never once heard the voice of God. They've heard words being spoken. They've heard words being read. They've heard hymns about Christ being sung, but they have never, ever truly heard. Notice he doesn't say they've heard. He says they've heard and hath learned. In other words, they've not only had that inward drawing to Christ, but they've also been given and taught the ability to obey God. Notice he says that they cometh unto me. Everyone that has heard and has learned comes unto me. Those drawn to Christ do not come blindly. They don't come ignorantly. They are taught of God. 
Today, if you're a child of God, you did not come ignorantly. You didn't come blindly. I certainly hope that's not the case for you, that you had some event in your life that says, this is the day you got saved, but nothing was from God. We have to stop and think this morning that the Word of God, it is the Spirit of God through the Word of God that teaches us. God's Spirit is who teaches us who Christ is. It is the Holy Spirit of God that shows us who God is. It makes verses like Romans chapter number 10, verse 17, it makes those verses make much more sense when we realize being taught of God is a work of the Holy Spirit of God who is teaching us by drawing us to trust in Christ. Romans 10, 17 says the very familiar verse. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is one great truth today. It is a sad truth, but it is scriptural. As vitally important as the preaching of the word of God is, it does not produce faith in all who hear it. Okay, now we're told to preach the gospel to every creature. The preaching of the word of God, this is not because I stand here, but the preaching of the word of God is the most important thing that we will face today. It is the most important responsibility we have today. But if there would be someone here today who still has not come to faith in Christ, who still has not repented and believed the gospel, simply hearing these words today, simply listening to a preacher, simply watching and following along will not produce faith in everyone who hears it. Now, we've made the mistake sometimes that we think people aren't responding quick enough, so I'll just keep saying it and I'll keep saying it and I'll keep saying it. Listen, there has to be a drawing of the Holy Spirit to Christ to trust in Him. It must be there. How does He do that? He does that through the preaching of the Word. That's what it means. Faith cometh by hearing. Again, not everyone that hears comes to faith. However, we do understand that it is the way in which God is drawing His children to Himself. That was largely, that thought was largely disbelieved by most of Israel. And in Paul's day, even when he wrote the, wrote the epistles to the Romans, there was, a, there was a, a disbelief by Israel. Again, Israel heard the word. Israel had, they, were, they received the first oracles of God. If anybody had a quote-unquote advantage, it was the Jews. But it didn't produce faith in all that heard. The Spirit, of the, God, the Spirit of God through the Holy Spirit teaches and calls through the Word of God. He uses preachers of the gospel. Over in the book of Ephesians, chapter number 4, look at verse number 10. Ephesians 4, verse number 10. And we see this, we see this working of how the Holy Spirit teaches and how the Holy Spirit guides. Ephesians 4, verse 10. The Bible says, He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. We see here that it is through the instruction and through that which God has given and even through the church. Notice he speaks, he gave these apostles, he gave these prophets, he gave these evangelists, he gave pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints. It, that, is, that is often missed. What is, the, what is the role of these apostles and these prophets and these evangelists and pastors and teachers? Primarily, it is for the perfecting of the saints. These, these offices, these works, they are given for the proclamation of the word. They are gifts of the ascended Christ to his church. Pastors and teachers, pastors are, are given the ability and the, the, the opportunity to shepherd and instruct. Today, my purpose is perfecting of the saints. Now, there may be someone here today who is yet outside of the body of Christ. They still have not repented and believed the gospel. But do you realize that primarily when we gather together as a church body, it is for the purpose of this perfecting of the saints and coming into the unity of the doctrines in which we are to believe. Now, we are told to preach the gospel. There's no question about that. But the primary reason you're here today is for this very purpose right here. That faith that Christ, you have been brought into trusting Christ. And now we've been given these abilities and these opportunities to come and hear the word of God. It is by divine revelation that teaches the sinner that they have a need of Christ and that Christ is sufficient for all of their need. Jesus would later say in, the, in John chapter number 16, verse number 8, all these thoughts uh, go together. He's speaking about the comforter and he's speaking about him going away. And he says in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. He will show you things to come. And here's what Jesus says, and this is the beauty of this text. Jesus' own words about the coming of the Holy Spirit are these. He shall glorify me. Notice the order. He, the Comforter, shall glorify me, Christ, the Son. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. This Holy Spirit that would come was, it was with the intent purpose of glorifying Christ. 
The Holy Spirit gave the apostles the revelation of God's will for his church, which is now recorded in the New Testament, and they continue to assist us today. The Holy Spirit never works independently of the Father, but he continues the message of the Son, or the mission of the Son, rather, which was the saving of his own. What Jesus Christ is doing today is through, his, through the Holy Spirit is continuing the mission of what Jesus Christ had begun. When we think about the power of the Holy Spirit, we oftentimes, we neglect it. We neglect the Spirit's role in coming to Christ. We neglect the Spirit's role in teaching us. We, we, we don't stop to think about that these things that have been given to us, the Holy Spirit of God and his, his leading and guiding our life to reprove the world of sin, to teach us and instruct us. This is the gift of the drawing of the Father. We now have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within each one who is a believer. Every person who hears the way of life will come to Christ. If you truly hear the way of life through the power of the Holy Spirit, you are instructed to believe and trust in Christ. What Jesus is revealing in our text in John 6, verses 45, 45, 46, 47, and 48, he is really demonstrating to us what grace really is. He's revealing to us the design of grace. He's revealing to us the means of grace. And he's, he's, he's describing to us the results of grace. These are the things that happen as a result of the grace of God. All of them go together. It is God who designed what grace would be. It is God who provides the means in which grace would be given. And it is God who has designed what the results of grace being displayed in the heart of a sinner would do. Folks, this is where we give God all the glory for everything that's accomplished in our life. And this is where we give God all the glory for our salvation and for our eternal glory, for his eternal glory and for our sanctification. We are continually being taught of God. His word is what teaches us. That's where we're learning. And the Holy Spirit is giving us understanding of what we're reading. Yet man today does not want to give God the glory for saving him. The only reason you came to Christ is because you were drawn by the Holy Spirit of God. And there's nothing wrong with that today. There's nothing wrong of giving God all the credit for your salvation. Man is unable to believe unless he has heard and learned of the Father. Now in John 6, 46, he says very clearly, not that any man hath seen the Father. Now it's interesting, he says, every man that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. And then almost it's, it almost reads like it's out of place. Not that any man hath seen the Father. In other words, it's, it's a, it, it almost sounds uh, opposite. In other words, there is a supposition here that should not be supposed. It should not be supposed that in order for a sinner to come to God that he must see the Father. In other words, there is no part of salvation that should say, in order for you to come to Christ, you have to see the Father. Because Jesus clearly says, no man has seen the Father save he which is of God, or except he which is of God, he has seen the Father. Jesus is referring to himself. I've seen the Father. The only exception to that rule of who has seen the Father is me. 
You haven't seen him. Notice he doesn't say every man that sees the Father and hath learned of the Father comes to me. He says every, everyone that has heard and hath learned of the Father. To hear and learn of the Father is not even to hear his audible voice or to see him. The essence of God, and it's a little bit theologically deep this morning, but the essence of who God is, is invisible. The complete essence of God to you and I is absolutely invisible today. But here's what we do understand. Christ has seen the Father, and he says, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, but the revelation of this grace, the revelation of eternal life, is given by the Spirit through the Word. This is a sidetrack, but there's a lot of people who say that the Holy Spirit works apart from the Word of God. That's not true. The Holy Spirit is not going to ask you to do something that the the Word of God does not back up or confirm. He does not act as rogue. He doesn't go out on his own and say, I'm going to act apart from the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God reveals the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not rogue. He says very clearly, He will glorify me. How do we glorify Christ? We glorify Christ through what we read about Him in His Word. When you read those wonderful passages about who Christ is and what Christ has done for you, it's the Holy Spirit of God that is penetrating your heart and reminding you of the goodness of God's grace. This isn't about the Holy Spirit doing something on his own. The Holy Spirit is convicting us and he's challenging us through the word of God. The Holy Spirit is going to glorify Christ and he is going to confirm his word. He that hears the gospel and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ has eternal life. Folks, millions of people do not even believe what I just said. You can go into any country in the world and ask how many people believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will get many who will say, why would I believe on a dead, false God? Why would I believe in a fairy tale? Why would I believe? That's what their response would be. You know what's very clear? They haven't heard and they haven't learned. Because nobody who has heard and learned says that. They say, yes, I've trusted Christ completely for my salvation. He was the only remedy for my sin. We take this for granted by simply saying, well, doesn't everybody think this to an extent? No, they don't. There are people in your extended families who don't even believe what I just said. There are people you work with who don't believe what I just said. They, don't, they haven't heard him and they haven't learned of him. They have no trust in Christ. This is not about Christ plus or minus something. This is all, it is all in trusting Christ. He who hears the gospel, who hears Christ, has learned of him, believes. I love what it says in the... The book of 1 John, chapter number 5, we've, we've probably referenced this verse many times, but it's, it's appropriate for today. 1 John 5, verse 10, he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record. That God 
hath given to us eternal life, and this life is where? Is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Now notice that. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. That ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Without the Son, there is no life. Now this is not going to be popular with people. Hopefully it won't won't offend us. The gospel excludes every other religion that does not demand faith in Christ alone. And you say, that's not being welcoming. That's not being cordial. No, that's being biblical. Because the truth is, that if, it does, if there is anything less than a demand in Christ alone or anything more than a demand in Christ alone, you are dealing with that which is false. We, we live in a world today that says, can't all Christians just get along? The problem is, not everybody is Christian. Not even everybody who claims to believe are believers. Now why... Why do we have such a struggle with that? This this verses tell us right here that we have the record. The record that without the Son, there is no life. The gospel in Paul's day, the gospel in Jesus' day, was offensive to the non-believer. We are so afraid today of offending people that instead of proclaiming a true gospel, we have started to proclaim something that seems palatable to the human reasoning instead of saying, if you do not have the Son, you do not have life. Not, well, your religion's okay, but it's not the best. If it's not about Christ, it's not even, it's nothing. You realize it is nothing. Now, that's, that's difficult to deal with today because we think about this and we say, wait a minute, I, I know a lot of good religious people. Religious people will not get to heaven just because they practice religious things. If you don't have the Son, you do not have life. The gospel is extremely offensive. Right now, you see the gospel actually will drive away. It'll drive people away. You know, I remember when I knew I was supposed to be in the ministry, I had this wide-eyed idea. And I've had to learn this over the years. That boy, what a, what a glorious truth it's going to be to give such a glorious message to people and people are going to respond by droves and we're going to see the church so filled with people we're not going to know where to put them all. And then I realized the more I kept preaching the gospel, the more people kept slipping away and more people disappeared and less people kept coming. And suddenly I'm offending everybody because I'm preaching Christ crucified. 
Suddenly, it wasn't, wow, that's not what I thought it would be. Doesn't everybody love the message of Christ? Isn't the message of Christ a message of love? That's what everybody wants it to be. And it is the greatest demonstration of love. But here's the problem. If you haven't heard and haven't learned of him, it's crazy talk. And it offends you because it's offensive. When I stop and I think about why in the world does anybody want to get into preaching the gospel? I hope you're not getting into preaching the gospel because you want to be popular or you want to have a great following of people because you preach the unadulterated true gospel of Christ. You're not going to be popular. Matter of fact, you're probably going to be despised. Not by believers, but by non-believers. True believers, are not, they are not offended by what I just said. Matter of fact, they say the Holy Spirit of God's convincing me the same thing. That, yeah, this is true. It's Christ or it's nothing. It's Christ alone. And yet, we struggle in our humanity. Well, why? How is this fair? Why doesn't everybody hear and learn then? Why does God do this to the, what appears to be the exclusion of others? And again, I've reminded us over and over again, quit focusing on why someone's excluded and keep asking yourself the question, why am I included? We're so worried about who's not, we're getting, our, we're getting, we're getting distracted. And you're losing your humility when you start to think, well, why aren't they? No, why are you? Why have you heard? Why have you learned? It's not about who you are. It's not about what you do. Then why is God demonstrating his grace? Why did he design it so that you would come to believe? Because the promise is very clear. He that believeth on me, look what it says, hath everlasting life. That means he already has it. We make this grand mistake by saying, if I believe, I get everlasting life. The reason you believe is because you have everlasting life. It's because you, by the grace of God, have been drawn to the Father through the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've put it so that man just says, if you want everlasting life, just believe. Just believe. Just believe. Yes, there is belief, but where does that belief come from? Why do I believe these truths today? There's a very important principle here. We dealt with this. Jesus says man is unable to believe in him unless he's heard and learned of the Father. This is the second principle for this morning. Jesus says believing in, believing is not the cause of a sinner obtaining eternal life. Rather, it is the effect of it. Jesus says believing is not the cause of a sinner obtaining eternal life. Rather, it is the effect of it. Notice again what he says, verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Christ is still pursuing the same line of truth that he mentioned in verse 44 when he said this, and this was the verse we dealt with, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Do not separate verses 45, 46, 47, and 48 from what Jesus said in verse 44. He didn't change the subject. In other words, he didn't go from talking about the drawing of the Father now to just simply believing on your own accord. He's still dealing with the subject of being drawn by the Father. Verse 47, again, I, I, I know that if you say this in some places, this offends people. And I'm going to say another one, and again, I hope this does not offend you. 
John 6.47 is not an invitation to salvation. Okay? Now you say, what do you mean? Because the context here, if I just pull that verse by itself, okay? If, if I'm talking to somebody in a coffee shop or I'm talking to somebody on the street and I start pulling verses out, okay? And I start saying, I'm going to give them this verse. I better understand where the context and why Jesus said what he was saying. This is not a standalone invitation, pray and receive Christ verse. This is the effect of what belief has already done. This is the effect of grace. This is what's happened in a person. He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. In other words, the reason you believe is an indication that you already have divine life in you. Now, what I just said is completely contrary to what most of us, I would say, maybe not most of us, maybe that's painting this too broadly, that's opposite of what you were taught at some point. And again, I heard a wise man say yesterday, if you see something new in the Bible that nobody else has seen, it's probably false. I'm not the first one that has seen this. Okay, and by the way, if you're that person that says, I see something nobody else sees, I'm running from you. Because you're not, you are not divinely inspired. You're, you're never going to get into this book and find something that somebody else, and you're going to be able to say, I see something nobody else has ever seen. It's not going to happen. And if you do, actually it might happen, you'll think it's happening, but you're not giving any truth that somebody somewhere didn't already see. This is not a new truth. Sadly, for many of us in the Baptist churches, this would have never been taught the way that it has been taught for, the, for a number of years. This verse has been used as an invitation to salvation. This is a declaration of what's already taken place. And there's a huge difference in what's being said there. Now, again, the invitation to believe is still there today. If you're still not saved, you're still not come to Christ, to go, to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's an invitation. But this particular verse in its true context is not about an invitation to, hey, just choose to believe and you'll have everlasting life. Jesus, again, has stated in verse 44, he had stated that what was essential from God's side, if a sinner comes to Christ, is he must be drawn by the Father. In verse 45, he defined what this drawing consists of. Okay, this drawing consists of hearing and learning and coming. Okay, you can see the pattern here. Jesus is not... We take the Bible and we try to chop it up into portions that we can, we can digest. We, we, we take them and we say, okay, I can handle that verse. But Jesus was not changing the subject every time. He was dealing with the same subject that no man can come to me except the Father draws him. So verse 44, he says, here's what's essential. From God's side, if a sinner comes to Christ, he's got to be drawn. Verse 45, he defines what this drawing consists of, hearing and learning of the Father. Then in verse 45, to guard against any false, what might be inferred from what he's saying, he says, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. This is what verse 47 is all about. Now, this will kind of shock our world sometimes, and it shocks the world of people who have been taught one way all their life. The fact that a man believes is the evidence that he already has eternal life within him. See, we've had this backwards for years. We've had this, you believe first, and then eternal life will all of a sudden. The reason you believe is you've had a godly work done in your life and in your heart. 
You and I are not the author of belief. Again, that is, and I've told you folks this many, many times, and someday maybe it does the same thing here. That gets me thrown out of churches. That gets me uninvited to preach anywhere because people don't want to hear that. They want to hear, I just randomly choose to believe on my own, and it's all up to me whether I believe and then I get eternal life. Yet the Bible says Jesus' own words say the only ones that believe are those that have heard and have been taught, heard and learned. You cannot disconnect the thoughts. That's why I'm hammering these expositional preaching because it is so important. That's how you get led astray and that's how you get deceived by just pulling one verse out, popping it up on a screen and then building the whole doctrine around that one verse, not taking the whole context of what Jesus was saying. You remove verse 44 from Jesus' words, you'll completely change the meaning of what he said. Again, who gets the glory in all this? Christ gets all the glory in it. The sinner, this may sound a little, a little silly, but the sinner ought to believe. You have divine life in you, belief is coming. To have the work of the Spirit in your life and to say, I'm not going to believe. You're putting a lot of self-centeredness and you're putting a lot of power on man to, for man to be able to say, I can pretty much do whatever I want to do. And last time I checked, man isn't God. Yet we have made God into some kind of just cosmic being who just kind of floats into our life and we can decide whether or not we want him to do a work or not. And we don't want him to do a work. We pray this way. We, have, we hold these grand evangelistic campaigns. Nothing wrong with that. And our prayer is this. We're praying for a mighty move of God. What exactly does that mean? Exactly. What does it mean? Often, when you're praying that way, you're praying that something, humanly speaking, we can say something's happening positive. Or we could pray like we read in our psalm this morning that we... Simply let God arise. May his power be on display. May the glory of God be seen. You realize that the glory of God is sometimes seen in human terms when it looks like a complete failure. We have, so, we have bought it hook, line, and sinker that a mighty move of God is equated by large human response. Now, do I believe that? Do I believe God has within his power to save the entire city of Springfield? I do believe that. I believe he can save every single soul in every single town and community and pick the smallest place in Ohio. And I can say even they are not without God. But just because I don't see a human demonstration doesn't mean God is not moving and it doesn't mean that God is not calling and people are not hearing and believing. It's an amazing thing how much success some preachers of the gospel are having. Now again, it's not for me to say if it's true or it's not true. But I will tell you this, based upon what I'm seeing, if that's right, we're doing it all wrong we should just quit. Now, the last time I checked, 
The last time I checked, and again, this is not about me. This is about the word of God. The gospel is being preached here. It's being preached faithfully every week, every service. We're not seeing human results. We're not seeing what appears to be a grand move of God. But does that mean God is not, quote unquote, working? Absolutely not. Remember, I pointed all the way back to that, that verse in Ephesians that God gave unto the church for the perfecting of the saints. Now, again, would I love to see a, a van load of people who are, who are unsaved pull into this parking lot, come in and take seats on the front row, and we have such a, such a quote-unquote move of God that we see 15, 20 people or even, le- even more, even less saved? I would, I would <laughs> wow, what, wouldn't that be something? But if that's all I equate it to, and I think that this gospel message is ever going to be received where people are going to say, we love that, we love the preaching. Listen, you start preaching the the true unadulterated gospel of Christ, and I'm telling you, you make a lot of people who even claim to be believers, you make them really, really mad. They don't like it. You can't come in here preaching that. You're going to hinder us from moving forward for God, really. Last I checked, Jesus was not in any, any interest of trying to move forward anything. He was completely giving us the truth of how this saving faith works. In addressing sinners from the standpoint of human, human responsibility, again, man is not left without responsibility. Again, you'll be labeled, I've been labeled this already. I've been labeled it. Uh, you just believe God is so sovereign in salvation that man has no responsibility. And I say, you've never listened to a message preached here then. You've never listened to one. Because if you ever walk away with the impression here that God is so sovereign that man has no responsibility, you've been mishearing what's being said. Because that's never been, it should have never even been implied. You have a responsibility today to repent and believe the gospel. That's fully on you. You have a responsibility to repent and believe. Is God sovereign in salvation? Absolutely. Salvation is of the Lord. But don't believe that that just means that you're either going to be saved against your will and pulled and drugged down some aisle. No, listen, you have a responsibility to repent and believe. Whosoever believeth in Christ shall not perish but have eternal life. That's you today. That's anyone who's sitting in this, in this building today. That's anyone who's sitting under the preaching of sound gospel preaching today. That call can go out. Whosoever believeth in Christ shall not perish, but have, have eternal life. Every pulpit in America can preach that. Every pulpit in the world can preach that. Nevertheless, the fact simply remains, no unregenerated sinner ever did or ever will believe. In other words, regeneration, we've been talking about this in the study of Romans, regeneration is required before a man or a woman comes to Christ. That's been the whole point in Romans. A regenerated man, a man who's been changed, a man who has seen and shown, he's been, he has heard, he has learned, suddenly now he comes to God, he comes to Christ. The unregenerate sinner Let's say the most obstinate man or woman came into this building today and sat down in one of these rows. I could say about that man or that woman, he ought to love God with all of his heart. 
I ought to be able to say to him, repent and believe the gospel. That's a command. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Without regeneration, he won't. But you know where my hope is? That one day, that obstinate man, and I've seen this, I've seen this happen. At the time, I thought it was because he heard a good preacher. That was me. And all the arrogance, I got him. No, what happened is I watched an unregenerate young man go from being unregenerate to regenerate. Who wanted, literally, would have rather seen everybody around him I thought at one point, the way he looked at me, I thought, if he catches me in the alley behind this place, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me because he, he was offended. But guess what happened during that time? He was regenerated. He had a change. Suddenly, he went from hating the gospel to now from what he appeared. Now, again, I'm not the judgment of man's heart, but what I saw took place in that young man's life, he was much different than the way, the way he came in. His heart was regenerated. Now he trusted Christ. That wasn't because the preacher was good. It wasn't because the preacher was eloquent. It's just because the preacher preached the word of God. And that night, it was in spite of me. Because that's when I had the attitude that, yeah, you just got to get under some good, you just need to be under a good preacher. Once you're under a good preacher, all the results are no problem. Oh, how wrong I was. It's not the greatest preacher that sees people saved. It's the great God behind it all. The fact that God even allows us to be used, to even open our mouths and be a part of this, man, ought to put us all on the floor and say, why in the world with this majestic sovereign God, why would he even waste his time with people who are not going to do what they're supposed to do many, many times? Yet, until this divine grace of God shows up, gives an unregenerate man a new heart, and gives him newness of life. What we say then when a man does believe is that it's positive proof that he already possesses eternal life. If you come and tell me that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior or as your only Savior, Christ alone, I'm not going to ask you, are you sure? Do you, all, do you all know what I'm saying? I'm not going to give you a 10-question list. In order to make sure your profession is real, I want you to answer these 10 questions. Sadly, today, in most churches, if you come forward during an invitation, someone comes and says, listen, I'm trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. I was a wretched sinner. I was depraved. I had nothing I could do. And then the preacher says, well, what did you pray? Are you kidding me? Or what did you do? First of all, I didn't actually even pray or didn't do anything at the moment. Do you see what's happening? You're putting everything centered on what man did. And is this real? Listen, it's not my job to confirm whether it's real. You're going to give evidence of a real salvation after you've been saved. Evidence is going to follow you. Fruit is going to follow you. But if a man or woman comes to me and they said, oh, listen, I am trusting in Christ alone for my salvation. I am trusting. I have repented. I believe in Christ. I'm going to look at that person and say, then you possess eternal life based upon what the Bible says. 
Not a 10 question interview and if they don't all answer right, let's do it again. I've heard, I've heard of cases, I've never seen it personally, and I'm going a little longer today. I've, I've heard people say, people come forward and they've said, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior, and yet they still lead them to an altar and they say, well, let's be sure. What are you, what are you making sure of? You realize not every single person believes that? Go into downtown Springfield, go on Limestone, drive into the center of downtown Springfield, to choose any place you want, ask people around the road, ask them how many actually believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. I guarantee you, you get more negative answers than you will positive. Yet when a person suddenly comes to Christ, we say, well, tell me the details. How did it happen? The Bible says how it happened. You heard and you learned of the Father, drawn by the Father through Christ, through the means of the Holy Spirit of God. That's how you got there. Our humanity doesn't want to let go. When any man does believe, or woman believes, it's positive proof that they already possess eternal life. He that believeth on me hath or already has eternal life already. I love what Jesus said, and I'll give you these two verses and we'll be done. John 3.36 tells us this, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. I know we don't use the haths in our daily language today, but it simply means has. Has everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Many times we focus on the doctrine of the love of God, but we don't realize just how bad God hates sin. And we don't understand how his anger burns with a holy, righteous hatred against sin. Don't ever presume on the love of God to excuse unbelief. In other words, don't ever say the love of God is so good that he will excuse my unbelief. That's a lie. That is a lie. That's a demonic lie. That's not even demonic. That's the, that's the full depravity of man on display. When I say this about God, God's love is too grand or God's love is too great that he'll excuse my unbelief. He will never do any such thing. The love of God is the grandest thing you'll ever know. The love of God is the most wonderful truth you'll ever know. But the love of God, because of his holy, righteous hatred of sin, will never excuse unbelief due to his love. There are pulpits all over this country today that are preaching that message. God's love is too grand. God's love is too great. God will even excuse your unbelief. He will do no such thing. There's a command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. There is a command to repent and believe the gospel. When we stop and we think about all the realities of what Jesus was saying, next week we'll look at that very simple statement. Jesus says in John 6, that very last verse, we didn't get to that one today, he says, I am that bread of life. This is not just a ho-hum statement. This is the statement now that started this whole line of questioning. Remember, they started by asking Jesus, by Jesus declaring he was the bread of life, and they questioned, they thought it was physical bread. This is kind of like a, uh, like a turn in this sermon now, where he says, I am the very thing which you say I'm not. 
I am the bread of life. And we'll deal with that phrase next week. All right. Well, let's go ahead and stand together if you would. Thank